Did y'all have a hard time getting here this morning? I wanted to stop on the way and just go for a walk. It's been a while since we've had weather this nice. You know, I think for most people, whenever winter begins to subside and give way to spring, it brings back a lot of fond memories. This is a happy time of year, not just because we remember celebrating Easter, but probably because uh, we remember our seasonal depression being cured by a healthy dose of vitamin D from the sun. So that's always a good thing. When I was growing up, my grandma always used this time of year to take me and my brothers away. And the way that she uh, managed four rambunctious boys with little to no discipline in their life was she took us somewhere where nobody could hear us yell. So she would take us off to a trail somewhere. We'd go hiking around Roaring River or over by Devil's Den, or we would uh, go down uh, towards Mount Magazine and use those hiking trails. And my favorite was when Grandma let us break the rules. And we went (coughs) off the trail. And I know you're not supposed to do that, but listen, guys, I like breaking rules. We'd go off the trails, and we'd make our own trails. And I know that there's some ecologist somewhere, maybe not here, maybe listening online, that is saying, oh, you shouldn't say that. Those are the happiest memories I have of my childhood. And we'd go back to the same places year after year. And we would find these trails that we had walked before, and we we started to make little markers for ourselves because we realized it was also possible to get lost. Sometimes we would wander off too far, and we would find that familiar trail sign that said, this is the way that you're supposed to be going, or at least for the moment. And it would give us direction in where we were supposed to go. You know the trail markers I'm talking about. Sometimes when you're on the right trail, the one that you're supposed to be on, sometimes it's a flag on a tree, or it's a particular color that stands out. I think we are all familiar with what has become a consistent trilogy in the New Testament. Faith, love, and hope. Those three things, when we put them together, are the markers, I think, not only for life, but for ministry. Faith, life, I'm sorry, faith, love, and hope. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, those three things are in fact, the, the, this is the first time Paul is going to use that trilogy. We're most familiar with it in the book of 1 Corinthians when he writes to the Corinthian believers that of all of these things, faith, love, and hope remain, but the greatest of them is, of course, love. In his letter to the church in Thessalonica, he would begin to use this trilogy for the first time. And as I mentioned, I believe that they are the trail markers for our life. They guide us as we make decisions. They instruct us as we face hardships. And they encourage us when we need encouragement. Sometimes in life, the decisions that we are faced with seem quite clear. It seemed like a no-brainer. We know what to do next. 
But there are other times in which we are all familiar when we sit down and we simply do not know what to do. Those times in life when we say, I'm confused. Those times when we say, I don't think one option is better than the other. But which one is God's will? Which one is God's leading? Which one is God's direction? It's in these times that we simply pause along the trail of life and we look for the trail markers that guide us. Our text this morning comes from the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, where we have made it to verse 3. If you would, turn your Bibles there, and we will prepare to read verse 3 together. And as we are reading, we will continue in prayer that we might understand what God's Word says. Father in heaven, I thank you for bringing us together this morning for giving us the privilege to gather according to your name, not only by grace, but in providence, Lord. And I ask that as we turn to your word, that you would begin to open the eyes of our heart, that we might be able to behold the wondrous truth found in your law. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Bible says, Remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul is actually, we're in the middle of a sentence here. Right, we're in the middle of a sentence. Last week we looked at verse 2 where Paul is giving us this instruction. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Now, in verse 3, he turns to telling us how it is that he constantly remembers these Thessalonians in his prayer. He says he remembers them in his prayer. He constantly mentions them in his prayers by remembering them before our God and Father. I think there's something worth just pausing for a moment here to maybe pull back the mystery of prayer. I've heard a lot of people try to teach on what prayer is. I've heard a lot of, I've read a lot of books that try to expound on how Christians can become a people of prayer. And to this day, looking back at everything I've read on prayer, reflecting on what history has to say about this, prayer is not something that can be taught. Prayer is something that is caught. We have to understand what prayer is if we have any hope of becoming a true people of prayer. We can't teach on it. We can't say that the Bible instructs us to pray X, Y, and Z and follow a formula. Rather, we have to understand what the formula is showing us so that as we catch the principle of prayer in our life, we can begin to live a life that is full of prayer. So what then is prayer? Prayer is simply the intentional awareness of God's presence. And it is the opening of one's heart while in His presence. Now I say that it's intentional because you never get away from God's presence. Some people like to say that prayer is coming into God's presence, it's walking into God's throne room and coming before Him. Loved ones, the Bible teaches us plainly, God is all present. It doesn't matter where you go, 
you cannot get away from Him. He is with you even when you deny Him. He is with you even when you feel alone. What is prayer then? But it is walking in lockstep with God and turning the key in your head that is no longer ignorant of God's presence in your life, but acknowledges that He is there before you. He has His hand on your head. He has girded you in. He has walked before you. He walks behind you. He is supporting you and holding you and carrying you. He is your God. What is prayer but the intentional awareness of His presence. The bigger question is, if you want to learn how to pray, it is not what you say or how you say it, but it's how authentic you are when you realize you are before the all-knowing, almighty Lord who created the universe. Sometimes we become aware of God's presence. And we pray all the things that are good to pray before Him. You know, I talk different in front of different people. I get around my family and I'm a little bit more rowdy than any of you would like to see me. When I stand in the pulpit, I try to honor the reverence that this pulpit deserves. Not because of my authority, but because of the authority of the Word of God. When I'm speaking to my boss, if I was at work, and I'm speaking to somebody that has authority in my life. Sometimes I'm just respectful. Don't we teach our children to act right? Sometimes we apply that to God and we're wrong for doing so. God's not interested in you acting right. It's not by you acting right that God saves you. God's interested in knowing you. God's interested in you knowing Him. That means, for all you foul mouths out there, this is going to stir some of you up. If you cuss in your head, God hears it. If that's the authentic you... First of all, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. God should change your life, and I will pray that He will do so. But God can handle the authentic you. Take off the mask. When you come to God, let your heart spill out. I had a riding coach one time, and she called it... Uh, Whenever you would free write, this is an exercise that sometimes you do to get past, you feel like you're trying to be someone. What happens when you're writing a lot of times is the editor gets in front of the artist, right? Writing is an artistic practice. It requires art. Well, sometimes we get so afraid of saying things the wrong way that the editor takes over and we can't write three words without trying to figure out if it's supposed to end in ED or IY or whatever, or if that's the right word there, or who, what's, and who cares, Sometimes you have to tell the editor in your life just to be quiet so that you can see what's really on your heart. And so I would do this free writing exercise. I'd sit down with a pen, fast writing pen and a piece of paper, and I'd write as fast as I possibly could. Sometimes I didn't know the words that were going to come back, and I would look back over this, and I would look at it, and I'd go, 
that is a terrible idea. I should kill this project immediately. Or I'd look at it and I'd say, this is brilliant and I didn't even see what the main point was until now. She called it letting the colorful coleslaw of your mind dump onto the page. Prayer should look like that. Prayer should look like opening our heart before God with so much authenticity that there is nothing left. Sometimes we're hesitant to do that. Let me give you a little bit of encouragement. You will not surprise an all-knowing God. You simply cannot do it. But by opening yourself up to Him in that way, authentically coming before the God that doesn't see your mask, allows you to know Him. It's not about Him knowing you. It allows you to know Him. It shapes your life. It changes the way that you see things. It reveals things to you. How is it? That Paul and Timothy and Silas, whenever they were praying to God and mentioning the, Thessalon- the, the, the people in Thessalonica, they remembered before God these people. These things that just seemed to come into the background. Have you ever been praying for something specifically and somebody comes to your mind? And we try to push that aside and we say, I'm not praying about that right now. I'm praying about this. I've got work to do with God. Here we go. What if that's God working? What if that's God directing your prayer? This is what Paul is saying. As we are praying, as we are men of prayer, I remember you all. You come into my mind. And as I remember you, what do I do? But I thank God. I thank God for you all, always constantly mentioning you in my prayers as I remember these things about you. And he gives us this list, our trilogy. I remember your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we talked about what is prayer. And you're getting a little bit of that now. Well, I want to move on to what makes us thankful. So often our prayers become a time of things that we're not thankful for that we want God to fix. Have you ever heard it said that Christians spend more time praying to keep the saints out of heaven than to get the lost there? There's a lot of truth to that statement. We spend more time on our prayer request praying to keep those that we know are saved from entering glory then we do praying for the lost to be a part of the kingdom. That's a missed priority. That's a missed opportunity. I'll go one further. That's evidence that the church has lost its heart. That's evidence that we have become consumed with maintaining what we have rather than fulfilling the Great Commission. I'm not saying there's anything wrong in praying for the health of the saints. I think that's an important thing to do. But it shouldn't come at the expense of seeing the lost become saved. The church isn't a passive force. It's an active force. 
We weren't left here so that we could take care of one another and be the church. We became the church so that we could be left here and we could take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We lose sight of that and we have lost our heart. What is it then that we should be thankful for? Since we seem to struggle with this, what is it that Paul begins to list? The first thing is this work of faith. Work of faith. What makes us thankful is a work of faith. I love this. There's a lot in here. You know, have you ever looked at this and said, well, what's the difference between labor and work? Paul uses two different words, and he's very intentional about it. The word used here for work actually implies a vocation, a job. It actually implies not just that this is the tedial work, but this is what I do for work. I I work by faith. Sometimes we think of faith as a purely intellectual exercise, something that's taking place only in our heads, that we have to commit to believe in things that we cannot see. But loved ones, faith is way more than that, especially when we see it used in this way. It is a work of faith. The apostle uh, affirms what James would later write in his letter when he said that faith without works is You awake this morning? What does James say? Faith without works is? That's right. Faith always accompanies works. Now, works doesn't always accompany faith. We should be clear about that, right? But when there's genuine faith, when there is genuine faith, when there is belief in the things unseen, and it's more than an intellectual exercise, work always comes out of that because by faith not only do we see things unseen but guess what else we do things that other people don't understand every Christian is in the vocation the job of being a Christian and we have one job I mentioned the Great Commission a little bit ago we remember the Great Commission it says go therefore to all the nations of the earth making disciples or teaching them baptizing them in the name of the Father Son and the Holy Spirit You know, there's only one imperative command in the Great Commission. There's only one word in the entire Great Commission that tells Christians what to do. It's not the word go. We like to grab a hold of that, go. That's not the imperative. As a matter of fact, that's in the passive voice. I think the best translation for that is, as you are going. You know what the one imperative in the Great Commission is? Make disciples. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. You know what the Great Commission is? It's not go, it's teach. And not just teach up here, but teach with your whole life. To be a disciple means that we're going much deeper. It means that we're contending over things more sincerely. What does it mean then to work with faith? What does it mean to say that every Christian's vocation is the faith? It means that the entire community of Christians are vocational disciple makers. Loved ones, this is a big deal, and I know that this is difficult to get across, especially in words because I struggle with words, but you're bearing with me so far. Let me say this. This. 
Communities, especially churches, are transformed when every man and every woman begins to grasp that their real vocation is Christian discipleship. That other job, that's just my other job. That's just the thing I do to make money. What I'm actually here on earth for is to make disciples. And I can do that at that other job. I can do it there. But I'm actually here to make disciples. Sometimes we grab hold of this and we get confused by what church work is and what genuine work of faith is. Church work too often becomes a matter of seemingly endless committee meetings preoccupied with maintaining the movement of wheels within wheels without producing genuinely meaningful ministry to people who are in need. Procter & Gamble came out with a management method a few years ago, well, several years, a few decades ago, as a matter of fact. And they called it the Elimination Management Strategy. And I think this is a brilliant way to approach complacency. They asked one question of every department, every decision, every team. If it wasn't there, who would notice? Let's just say in a hypothetical, if it wasn't there, who would be impacted? What would it matter? What if we did that to our lives? I spend a lot of time watching TV. If that wasn't there, would it hurt anything? What if we did this to churches? If Denver Street Baptist Church did not exist in Greenwood, Arkansas, who would notice? Would it be limited to the members of the congregation? If a particular ministry inside of the church didn't exist, who would notice? See, asking this question begins to kind of prime the pumps. It, it begins to set aside those things that we have put, been putting so much energy into maintaining so that we can begin to do the work of ministry again. So that we can be creative, so that we can pursue the Great Commission. Rather than being tired and trying to keep the wheels spinning, we work by faith. Rather than being consumed with church work, we work by faith. This is what Paul admired about those in Thessalonica. This is what he instructed them to do. And let me go one step further. When Christians begin to realize that their faith is a vocation, it becomes the basis of genuine stewardship in their lives. Stewardship in all the areas that they have. When we talk about stewardship, most of the time people, their minds immediately go, here comes the money talk. We'll get there. But let me start out by mentioning that stewardship is far greater than money. What about your family life? What about the way that you build up your family? That is an example of stewardship. The way that you serve in your family 
is stewarding people that have been entrusted to your life. And it's not only the specific sense of parents and children, but it's the broader sense of people being a family of God. It's the broader sense of recognizing that God adopted us into a family much larger than what we could ever know. We need to start thinking of family as being all-inclusive. Even if we're not engrossed with parent-child relationships, we are still responsible to different families. No one is on an island, especially the Christian. The people we choose to spend time with, the people we are invested in, they are family. Faith as a vocation means that we accept in all of these all of these relationships. Not only the joys, not only the blessings, not only the security that comes with having people that care for us, but it also means that we accept the problems, the conflicts, the struggles. That's what it means to be family on this side of heaven, y'all. Fortunately, when we get to heaven, we can set all that aside. Because God's going to fix everyone who has problems. Not us, of course. We don't have problems. But everyone else will be fixed. Some of you know that I was joking. And I appreciate that. Most relationships have problems in them. And I believe that the most common cause of a damaged relationship, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a friendship, whether it's parents, is unrealistic expectations. Unrealistic expectations. Sometimes the things that we think we can expect from another person simply are not realistic. And we know it if we think about it for five seconds. But I'll give you an example. Most parents care a great deal about the decisions that their children make. Even going off into adulthood, most parents care a great deal that their children would make decisions that represent the way that they were raised. Unfortunately, what a lot of parents do in order to especially when their children are off to college for the first time or they're empty nesters for the first time. A lot of times what parents do in order to maintain their kind of influence in their children's life, the only tool that they really have is to withhold from them. And so parents might withhold money. Worse yet, they might withhold emotional support. It comes all the way down to eventually getting to the area of manipulation. I want to say something, and I really want you to hear me. All efforts to change others, primarily to realize our own expectations, are doomed for failure. All attempts to change somebody else for our own expectation is doomed for failure. That's also the case in the church. 
I was counseling a mother who was dealing with the consequences of her decisions. Her daughter went off and got married to a guy that she didn't think was the right guy. She tried to convince her to change her mind with all of these tactics. She tried to withhold financial support and emotional support to get this daughter to change her mind. And lo and behold, if there's any children listening, parents are actually usually right. The marriage failed. It turned out to be a complete failure. When the mother came back to her daughter and invited her back over so that she could have support, their relationship was never reconciled. Because the daughter's attitude was, that's my mom just trying to control me like she's always done, and I'm not going back to it now. We cannot change people. We work. How do we work? Have you guys figured it out yet? We work by faith. Part of being a parent, part of being involved in family relationships, even in seeing people as children of God in our larger family, means that we recognize we are not in control. He's the great shepherd. He is the one that changes people's hearts. He is the one that can renew people. And sometimes even though we know better, we simply have to step back. And we have to let God do what He does. That doesn't mean we sacrifice our obedience. It doesn't mean we... Um, it, it doesn't mean that we... What's the word whenever you give in to something? We compromise. It doesn't mean we compromise our convictions. But it means that we trust that God is working. The other area where working by faith seems to play into our lives is simply at work. You know, Vince Lombardi had a famous speech whenever he joined the Green Bay Packers. He said, Always remember... God, your family, and the Packers. And he went on and said, in that order. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Always remember God first, then your family, then your work. Then your work. It always comes last. And when we put these things in order, we begin to recognize that these things can actually cure themselves. The most common problem in America today in regards to work is stress. I've got bad news for some of you. Actually, I don't see any. Well, yeah, I do. I actually see some young people. Um, hi, Bryson Rep. I have bad news. The world today is teaching us that any form of stress is a bad thing. Stress is actually a good thing when it's managed well. Stress prompts us. Stress tells us to do things. As a matter of fact, stress can even help us to overcome the worst times in our life. Stress can become destructive, but it's not always that way. Destructive stress comes at the point where our work does not have any meaning for us. Or when we allow our work to control everything else in our life. We remember God first, then our family, then our work. 
We work by faith in recognizing that whatever we do is just our second job. Now, I'm in a unique position, aren't I? My second job and my first job are one and the same. And I thank the Lord for that always. But working by faith keeps our relationship in God with other, and with others as the priority. When I first left my secular job, the first time around when I still lived up in Rogers, I had someone call me. As often happens, whenever you juggle a lot and you have a lot of responsibilities, whenever you leave, things aren't always as smoothly transitioned as they would like. And so I made myself available. My friend called me and he asked about some of the work that we were doing and I said, man, why don't we just go get coffee and we'll just work through this and I'll help answer all the questions you have because you're calling me three times a day and I'm trying to move on from this job. We sat down for coffee and I treated it like a biblical counseling session. As we were talking, we recognized that my friend's problems were not actually managing his work. They were managing himself. He had become so consumed with the, the workload that had fallen on top of him that he had lost sight of just living his life. My friend came to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He was saved and he reprioritized his life. He changed jobs. He, he cut things down. He made room in his life so that he could be a disciple so that he could follow Christ and God did the work. And of course, another area is money. We've become way too obsessed with accumulating stuff. It blows my mind how interested we are in accumulating stuff. We're interested in having the newest that and the newest this. Our obsession with accumulation of stuff and money is unnerving. In fact, when Jesus taught the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, he made it clear that a preoccupation with money reveals a false sense of the meaning of life. As Christians, we are to use money as stewards. That means that it, what we have has been entrusted to us. That means that the money that you have actually has designated purposes already. You're supposed to use everything that you have for God's glory and the service of others. That's why God gives us stuff. Now, that's a really simplified way to just kind of put into perspective what Paul is teaching here in the work of faith of the Thessalonians. But I've got two more points. He also says labor of love. And we'll go faster on these two points because I do see the clock. Which, by the way, can we pause for a second? Someone has moved that clock five minutes up. And every time I move it five minutes back, it's five minutes up again. And I don't know who you are, but I will find you. But now that we know that it's five minutes up, we're going to keep going. Paul also said that the Thessalonians were commendable because of their labor of love. Their labor of love. He uses a different word here from work, right? Before he used the word, we're familiar with the word ergonomics, right? That comes from the Greek word ergu, which means work, vocation. Well, here he uses the word kopu, 
which is actually not the idea of a vocation, but this is actually the concept of toiling. This is the actual nitty-gritty work. This is the exhausting kind of work. And isn't that how we describe love most of the times? That it's exhausting and it's everything that we can muster just to keep up with it? That's exactly what Paul is saying. Love goes the extra mile. Kopu, this labor that he's describing, it is self-sacrificing. This love that he's describing is a spirit of self-sacrifice. It's inseparable from Christian love. And listen, God's the one that determines self-sacrifice. And we all know how that went. This is inseparable from what it means to be a Christian. Our heightened awareness of feelings can actually cause us to misunderstand what Paul is saying here. See, love has less to do with the way that you feel and more to do with the labor that you pour into it. When spouses have disagreements and they struggle with things, their love isn't demonstrated in the spats that they have. It's demonstrated in their labor to return to one another. It's demonstrated that they continue to toil with one another. When relationships become damaged, love is not demonstrated in our affection for that person that we've lost, but in the toiling that we undertake to reconnect with them. This kind of love is demanding and exhausting. The reason we call it Christian love is it is simply not possible for it to exist in anyone who has turned in on themselves. Someone that is self-focused does not have the ability. They do not have the potential even to demonstrate this kind of labor of love. This is what Paul thanked for the believers in Thessalonica. This is what he marveled at in them. Not only did they work by faith doing things that didn't make sense to much of the world, but that they labored for one another. That they were committed and loved one another, that they were united by this. I said I'd go faster. We'll go to the third point. But I want you to understand that Christian love is the most healing, redeeming, and powerful force in all of the world. There's not an exception for it. There's not a replacement for it. Laboring because you care for someone. Continuing to love someone when they don't seem to love you. Is the most powerful force that God has given to his church. The third one, of course, is the endurance of hope. And as we talk of this, we look at what it means to have an enduring hope. Some translators call it steadfastness. Some call it perseverance. There's actually not a good English word to translate this. You see, this kind of endurance that Paul is describing is describing the persecution that the Thessalonian believers were receiving from the Jews. Remember Paul when he was there had made the, uh, the Jews in Philippi so upset with him that they, they began to run him out of town. They stirred up the rabble. They worked up so that Paul had to run, had to flee. And this is why he was only there for a short time. 
the church that took shape there would have continued to experience this persecution. And yet they remained. They kept working, they kept laboring, they kept serving God. And so as Paul comes to them and he's remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and he's receiving this report that Timothy has just brought to him, he uses the word steadfastness to describe the hope that is inside of the believers. Because even though they were confused about what the end times would look like, right? This is one of the main points that Paul's going to write about in this letter. Even though they didn't have all of the answers, even though they hadn't worked it all out for themselves, and Paul's going to give them help for this, they had a hope that continued to motivate them. Hope is the only adequate incentive of any heroic activity. I don't care what it is. Whether somebody takes a stand on something that they truly believe in, whether somebody goes to war, The only thing that motivates somebody to do anything heroic is the hope that they have that the outcome will be worth it. You know what kills hope when we believe that what we're doing is futile? When we believe that that phone call is not going to matter much. When we believe that sending that card is not going to encourage someone. When we believe that being the church is, well, we just come and we see what happens. Hope means that we have expectation in everything that we do. This isn't just about end times. This isn't just about, I believe I'll be in heaven one day. Eventually, if I can struggle through all of this and I can just wallow through the muck of life, eventually I'll wind up in glory. This is saying that I hope because I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins and is Lord of the world and Lord of my life. That when the gospel is preached, that people will respond to it. This is the hope that says, I believe that if I simply was faithful to what God told me to do in pursuing disciple-making relationships, that God can work. This is the kind of hope that says that if the gospel was preached in a church that was overrun with animosity and bitterness and backbiting and just bad attitudes that God could change that congregation. This is the kind of hope that says that Jesus is capable of doing everything that he says he's going to do. The problem is our hope so often is in the wrong places. We search for hope in some sort of escapism. We try to avoid the world around us. Listen, I, I read... You guys know that about me, right? We figured that out. One of the things I read is the newspaper. I know some of you read the newspaper. Do you know why I read the newspaper instead of watching the news on TV? If you've watched the news on TV, you probably know where I'm going with this. When's the last time you've been encouraged by the 5 o'clock news hour? They put all of the dramatic, awful stuff up front. I get a much bigger glance of the world, my community, the state, whenever I simply read the newspaper and I can just read the headlines on the atrocities. And I can see that, well, this world's not as bad as they're making it out to be. Still pretty awful. Because at the same time, It's way worse than they could ever possibly identify it without a biblical lens. 
But many of us just decide not to read the news at all, not to watch the news at all. Because if we're ignorant from it, we don't have to deal with it. Being uninformed, choosing ignorance, does not protect us from this world. There was a Hindu priest that revered life so much he refused to walk on a sidewalk unless somebody would walk in front of him with a broom and sweep it away because he didn't want to step on any life. In the same way, he was a vegetarian, so he only ate vegetables because he didn't want to harm life. Well, a friend came to him with a microscope and showed him what was on his leafy greens and his legumes and all of the life that was on it. So he took the microscope and he threw it in the trash and he didn't have to worry about it anymore. Being ignorant is not going to change reality. When we put hope in our ignorance or put our hope in ignorance, our hope isn't really in anything at all. The other thing that people put their hope in is in the pursuit of leisure or escape. We look forward to those vacations and those moments that we can get away because those are the things that are going to take us away. If I can just hope in that next vacation, I'll be able to get through this season at work. How's that working for you? I don't even have to preach on this. Has it fixed the stress problem? There's not enough work-life balance in the entire world to save you from this world. The other thing people put their hope in is in their financial security, right? Their estate plans. This cracks me up. I was talking to a friend the other day. He's a father. He has a family. He has four Four teenage boys. His salary is $83,000 a year. And he said, you know, when I was growing up, I never thought that making $83,000 a year that groceries would stress me out. Ain't that the truth? There's no such thing as financial security. Unless you can control the markets... The only thing that really we have any sense in putting our hope in, Paul identifies. When he gets to this, he doesn't just say our hope. He doesn't just say your steadfastness of hope, but there's that prepositional phrase at the end. And it's the answer to all of our problems and all of our questions and even looking at this guidepost. Hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope must be rooted in reality. That's why we hope in Jesus Christ. Hope is found in Jesus Himself and Jesus alone. As Paul reminded the Corinthians, this claim is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is to us who are being saved the very power of God. We cannot become escapist. We must realize that our hope our end times view of the world, even what's coming at the end of the age, 
all point to how we live our life today. If it doesn't point to what we are doing right now, here and now, we've missed the entire point of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, For all Scripture is profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction, training, and righteousness, so that the man of God may be made complete. If our view of what God is doing, if our hope is just in heaven as some kind of far-off idea, how is that profitable for you right now? It's not. God gave us the Bible with the explicit purpose. He told us what the purpose was. That it would inform our lives today. That our hope would not just serve to encourage us sometime in the future, but that it would motivate us right now. That it would stir our hearts right now to serve God. This word for endurance, I I said there's not an English translation for it because this enduring hope not only takes on suffering, but it creates opportunities out of problems. This enduring hope says, when all is lost, when all obstacles seem against me, when the gospel seems to not be able to go any further, God is able to do what He does. This kind of hope looks past obstacles and out of it brings forth opportunity. Endurance sustains the power of our hope. So I ask you, I know I've preached longer than usual. Where are you at in life? As you're going, as you're wandering, as you're asking what God would have for you next, Are you looking for the guidepost? Are you asking where work of faith takes place? Is your love a labor? Or have you given up on it? Have you forgotten what our hope truly is in? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Thank you again for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for your word that guides us and instructs us. Lord, I ask you, I ask you to stir our hearts according to your word. Where I have preached and where I have failed, where I've been unclear, God, I pray that your spirit would take over the work. I pray that you would pierce our hearts with truth and that you would motivate us as we stand, that as we praise you, Lord, that our heart will be dedicated on being your servants. Guide us, Lord, not just today, but as we go on our way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.